There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. New Age practitioners, those who subscribe to New Age spirituality, often practice something called positive affirmations. Is that the same as Bible-based confessions of faith? We need to explore that, and I'm going to focus on 10 primary points of comparison and then let you make up your own mind. Some Christians, out of concern that they're dabbling in New Age practices, teach against positive affirmations, but sometimes it's my opinion that they go too far and the pendulum swings the other direction altogether. By doing so, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as the old saying goes. So I believe the teaching I'm about to bring forth will bring a balanced view and will enable you to distinguish truth from error. So we're going to cover 10 points to bring clarity on this issue. The first point is the fact that words do contain power, but there are three types of power. Words do contain power. As a Bible believer, I can go back to Genesis and see how the entire universe was birthed into existence through a series of spoken declarations. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be a firmament, and it came into being. And then all the additional steps of creation. And then on top of that, Hebrews 1.3 states that he presently upholds all things by the word of his power. Another translation, the Amplified Version, said he upholds, maintains, guides, and propels the universe by the mighty word of his power. If words are that powerful coming from the mouth of God, certainly those who are made in his image have inherited power in their words. And even though the human race is in a fallen state, and even though many are not in a relationship with God, to a certain limited degree, I still believe words have power. Now, there are three types of spirit that can be contained in words, because words are invisible containers of spirit power. And that can be demonic power, or it can be soulish power, which is benign and of no great influence, or it can swing all the way into the positive and be filled with divine power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Demonic power, soulish power, or divine power. So keep that in your mind that words can either be demonic or human or divine in their effect, in their impact into our lives as they are spoken not only from God to us, if it happens to be a divine influence, but sometimes from God through us. 
And so that's something we should be very prayerful about. Number two, the second point is there are three levels of creativity in human beings. And to understand this concept of words having power, then we need to understand that there's three levels of creativity. And the first two levels can function without the personal influence of God. That doesn't mean they should, but it just means they can function without the personal involvement of God. First, the body. Second, the soul. Third, the spirit. Within our physical bodies, we have the power of creativity. The first sign of the blessing of God in the very beginning was procreation. God blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, many people that are not walking with God and have no inclination toward God, have no worshipful attitude upward toward the Almighty, can have offspring. And so they can function in that level of physical creativity apart from any kind of obedience to God or love for God or worship of God. Next is the soul, and the soul is the realm of the mind and the will and the emotions. And of course, every human being has those three attributes, mind, will, and emotions. And within the human mind is the power of creativity. We have ideas. We act on those ideas. Someone who is a godless atheist can get an idea about a corporation and begin to ideate concerning how to build that corporation, how to forge his vision into reality and uh, matching it with emotion because he can be very joyous about it or very uh, courageous about it and all kinds of human emotions can come into play. And he creates a business just on the basis of the seed thought of an idea that he plants and then produces the fruit of a successful company. So creativity, once again, is functioning apart from a personal involvement from God to that individual that's resident within the human makeup. There's creativity in the physical body. There's creativity in the soulish part of human beings. But then we get to the spirit. Now, the spirit in most human beings is dead in trespasses and sins. And they're locked into that because of the fallen state of mankind. But when you're born again, thank God, when you're born again, you get a new spirit that's infused with God's spirit. Now you're moved up to a whole new level of creativity that is contingent on relationship because through the communion you have with God, and that's a function of the spirit. In fact, your spirit function is threefold, communion with God, revelation from God, and conscience. And with those three influences, you become perceptive or sensitive to the purposes of God in your life, and you act on those impulses, and then God through you, in you, by you, creates 
wonderful things that never would have happened had you not yielded to his influence. And so there's three levels of creativity. And I brought that point out because those who are not yet born again, those who are not yet in a relationship with God through the washing of the blood of Jesus and the infilling of the presence of God, can still function on creative levels and bring forth changes, transformational changes in their lives. Even an alcoholic can decide, I'm not going to be bound to this addiction anymore. I'm rising above it and speak a positive affirmation and get results from it. Even though that person may not have yet repented before God and surrendered his life. So, there is a certain truth to be found in positive affirmations. There's a certain reality that results from that practice that doesn't mean it's sufficient within itself. Neither does it mean that it's always God-pleasing, especially if it's based on certain new-aged theological concepts like pantheism. For instance, most New Agers believe in this particular interpretation of the nature of the universe, that the universe is not a creation of God, but an emanation of God, so that everything has a divine essence. The tree is God, the dog is God, the cat is God, every flower in the field is God, you are God, I am God, every human being is God. Of course, I don't believe that, but I'm just transferring to you what some or most New Agers believe concerning the source of the universe. And that's the basis of the belief that affirmations, positive affirmations, have creative power. It's rooted in the idea that we are God, which is an absolute falsehood. I believe it's the height of spiritual egotism to say that. Because if you say we are God, that includes the worst of the human race and the best of the human race. And if you attribute divinity to humankind, you must attribute sinfulness to God. God is both evil and good, and that's completely unacceptable. But the basis of this concept of positive affirmations is the belief in the innate divinity of human beings, which is cracked at the foundation. That's a faulty foundation. And so, it falls apart, it crumbles apart when you realize that the basis of the whole concept is erroneous. Number four, New Age affirmations relegate God to an inferior position. For instance, the secret was a very popular megatrend in our culture a number of years ago. Rhonda Burns wrote the book, The Secret created the video first and out of it the book, and it popularized the idea that whatever you think can manifest if you hold that thought long enough and often enough, then thoughts become things. And of course, it even enhances that process if you do more than think, but if you actually speak it. However, in The Secret, God is depicted as a genie. And a genie is subject to the control of the one who has the lamp. And the lamp is the, uh, is the container 
of the genie that is like a prison until he's released by the one who has the lamp and then is bound to respond by granting wishes. Well, if God is relegated to that kind of position, then that exalts human beings to a superior position of being able to control this cosmic force by the right kind of statements that end up channeling that force the direction they want. And then, of course, they say, the universe granted my wish. Well, that's once again relegating God to an inferior, impersonal force rather than a personal God to whom we are accountable. And so New Age affirmations switch this thing from a a God domination in our relationship to a man domination in our relationship. Besides, the secret was channeled through a woman named Esther Hicks from a multi-personality entity named Abraham. And the Bible condemns channeling because it's not a true spiritual experience. It's a demon power impersonating whatever personality is supposedly channeled through a medium. And once again, uh, thoughts are not powerful within themselves if your theology is based on a wrong view of God and a wrong view of the universe. There may be some results And that's why people do it, and that's why people embrace it, and that's why people shout from the mountaintops that it works, because sometimes it does work apart from a relationship with God, but not like it does when you have a word-based life and a spirit-based life. And by spirit, I mean the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. New Age affirmations, and this may be a shocker for you, can also be termed witchcraft. Let me give you a definition of what witchcraft is. Witchcraft involves using spiritual power apart from the power of God to accomplish certain purposes. Witchcraft supposedly can cover both positive and negative things. There's white witches and black witches. In fact, When I studied yoga many years ago, back in 1970, the guru I studied under said that our yogic practices were witchcraft, but he called it white witchcraft. It's the use of spiritual power to accomplish righteous purposes. Uh, And it's not power that comes from God. It's illegitimate spiritual power. But then he also said there's red witchcraft, which is the use of spiritual power to accomplish selfish purposes, and then black witchcraft, which is the use of spiritual power to accomplish evil purposes, white, red, and black. But the Bible doesn't differentiate between white, red, and black. It condemns all witchcraft. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, God told the children of Israel when they were come into the land which he was going to give them, he said, There shall not be found one among you that makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, which is a medium, 
or a wizard or a necromancer, which is someone who contacts the dead. For all those who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. So God said the practices are abominable and the people who do them are abominable. Why? Because it wasn't God withholding legitimate experiences from people. It was God trying to protect them from deceptive experiences given by the devil and his hordes of demonic underlings whose purpose is to deceive humanity. So you must understand that if a person refuses the truth, and refuses to embrace a biblical pattern of salvation than trying to tap into spiritual power that is not sourced in the true God is witchcraft. It has to come under that heading. Number six, now we're going to move from New Age affirmations to biblical confessions of faith. Once again, let me say that some Bible teachers and Bible believers want to throw out the whole idea of confessing and claiming the promises of God for the fear of delving into or indulging in a new age practice. But see, the devil is a counterfeiter. He appears as an angel of light. He counterfeits the real. And there is a real revelation of how to live a successful, triumphant life. And it hinges quite a bit on what you say. In fact, one of my favorite sayings is WYSIWYG. You may kind of look at me sideways. WYSIWYG, what does that mean? W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. It's an acrostic. It means what you say is what you get. But not based on a New Age view of things because that would mean you're controlling your life and robbing God of his sovereignty. And you have to have a balanced view where God still remains the sovereign God. He's in charge. He's in authority. You're not controlling him, but you're cooperating with him. Big difference. Huge difference. So number six is biblical confessions of faith are first hinged on submission to the will of God. For instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not say, I confess, I'm going to escape the need of going to the cross. He knew the will of God dictated that he go to the cross. And so his confession was, if it be possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so submission to the Father was fundamental. It was absolutely the number one priority for him. But then he also said to the Jews who rejected his Messiahship, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that confession, that positive affirmation or declaration went into the grave with him and the word that he declared in advance was part of what brought him out triumphantly. No wonder James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You must fulfill the first part to succeed in the second part. God did not say that we needed to beg him to remove Satan from our lives or satanic influences. But he said if we submit to God under his authority, 
in cooperation with God, not controlling God, but in cooperation with him, then we can speak against the enemy and the enemy must obey. In fact, I had an experience, an encounter with Satan around 1985. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I know this sounds outlandish to some people, but absolutely it was true. It happened. Satan was standing at the foot of my bed. He didn't have red skin like he's depicted so often with. He didn't have a pitchfork. He didn't have a pointed tail. He didn't have horns. In fact, quite the opposite. He was very handsome in his appearance. He had a dark, swarthy complexion long black hair, long black cloak on. His eyes were what gave him away. His eyes were more full of hate than any eyes I've ever gazed into. I was paralyzed by this evil presence in the room. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. And his eyes were saying, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to wreck your life. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit rose up within me And I heard the sound of my own voice, words, 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 or containers of power. I heard the sound of my own voice saying, I conquer you, Satan, through the precious blood of Jesus. It is impossible for you to win. Now, I wasn't audacious in making that statement. That was a spirit-inspired statement in me. Somebody may think, how dare you? you? You should appeal to God. You should plead with God. Oh, God, please overcome this enemy for me. No, God wants you and me to grow up and mature and learn how to take that authority ourselves. Remember, he told the disciples, I give you authority over all the power of the enemy. I give you power over all the power of the enemy. And he wants you to assert that power in his name, for his glory, by his power, under his leadership, but he wants you to assert that power and not grovel before the enemy. Well, as soon as I said that statement, or at least it was generated in the thought realm, the enemy began to melt before me. His eyes began melting into his cheeks and where he had a look of absolute arrogance before. His look now was one of terror. And I felt how terrified he was at the mention of the blood of Jesus. Then I uh, declared it a second time. The Spirit of God rose in me in this vision type of experience again. And I said, I conquer you, Satan, through the precious blood of Jesus. It's impossible for you to win. I watched his head melt into his chest. Then I said it a third time, even louder and more authoritative. And I watched his whole form melt into the floor. And he's never been back in that manifest way since. Because I said, I conquer you through the precious blood of Jesus. My confession, my declaration made the difference, but it was under the power of the Holy Spirit inspired by God. Number seven, the seven Uh, the seventh point so far that I need to bring out is biblical confessions of faith only work for those who are in alignment with God's holy word, his written word, with regard to their behavior and their spiritual practices. See, in the secret, it doesn't matter how you're living. You could be indulging in all kinds of immorality. You could be greedy and self-centered 
and make your positive confessions and expect results from it. But biblically, confessions of faith are only successful when you are actively seeking to align yourself with the commandments of God. And there's a thousand and fifty commandments in the New Testament. And if you follow them, if you do your best to obey them, then your declarations have power. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. In Proverbs, we find that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. In other words, what you say can have a death-dealing influence or a life-imparting influence. And there are certain things that are death-dealing in their influence, like depression and fear and unbelief and greed and lust and anger. And if you speak words of greed, lust, anger, fear, doubt, etc., you're going to have a death-dealing effect on yourself and on others. But if your words are full of love and joy and peace and faith and confidence in God, and you match that with a life that is in alignment with God's written word, there's power there. To just randomly say statements like, I am confident, I am successful, I am strong mentally, I am strong emotionally, could have a certain limited amount of success for a person that is not in a relationship with God. They may feel some kind of slight difference, but nowhere near the power of the person who is not only surrendered to God, but in conformity to his word. Because Psalm 66 verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And see, you want God to watch over his word to perform it when you declare his word with your mouth. That's how Jesus faced off with the enemy. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. There is power in declaring the word of God. Number eight, biblical confessions of faith also hinge on God's declarations in his written word of what he wants or desires for his people. Not just commandments that we've got to align with, but provisions that he declares he wants in our life. For instance, Jesus said, not as the world gives, give I unto you, but my peace I give unto you. And he said, these words I speak unto you that my joy might remain in you. And then the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the spirit, which he has given us. And so on the basis of those three declarations in God's word, I can confidently confess I have the peace of God that passes understanding. I claim the joy of the Lord in my heart, and I declare that my inner being will overflow with the love of God. Those are not empty statements because they are word-based. So they're based on the revelation of the Word of God and faith in the promises of God, and not just on my own ability to think positively. It's not independent of God's Word. See, there's, there's plenty of scriptures that give us a basis for a faith confession. For instance, the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If making a positive affirmation was not a correct way to be a spiritual person, then Paul erred by writing that in his epistle. But see, he was making a positive affirmation. I can do all things through Christ who 
strengthens me. Well, what basis did he have for believing that Christ would strengthen him? Because in Psalm 27, verse 1, the Bible says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So I have a word basis for an affirmation and a declaration that I make. No wonder Jesus said in John 15, verses 4, 5, and 6, and also culminating in verse 7, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, brings forth much fruit. And then over to verse 7, he said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done. Well, that's all intertwined with his words abiding in us. And then what we speak has power because he said, you shall ask what you will, but my will becomes his will and his will becomes my will because they're all tied in together by his indwelling word. I hope you can see that. All right, number nine, and I've got to wrap this up. Biblical confessions of faith also hinge on knowing that faith pleases God. It doesn't please God for us to wallow in unbelief and discouragement and depression saying, oh God, I don't know how I'm going to make this, but maybe you'll intervene in my life. I just appeal to the sovereign God. Well, I'm sure he doesn't ignore that. But I also know the scripture says in Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then it goes on to say that without faith, we cannot please God. So the opposite must be true. No wonder Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two and 23, have faith in God or have the faith of God. Some translations render it. For truly I say to you, whoever shall say to this mountain, be moved and be cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he said shall occur. He shall have whatever he said. Now, if it was wrong to make a positive declaration, Jesus never would have given this promise. Now, again, it's not controlling God, but working in cooperation with God. And so you're not trying to force God's hand. You're actually becoming God's hand extended in this situation. You're the body that he dwells in. It's relational toward God, not dominational over God. You're not dominating God. You're in a relationship with God. And there's so much more that I can say. But let me uh, mention that the early disciples knew how to pray because they learned it directly from Jesus. And if you go to the book of Acts, they didn't plead with a sovereign God to intervene in the behalf of someone who was sick. For instance, Peter at the gate beautiful told the man who was crippled from his mother's womb, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. That was a powerful, positive declaration, but I believe it was based on sensitivity, and this is number 10, sensitivity to the living word, which is the rhema word. I've talked about the written word, which is the logos, but see, Peter knew by the Spirit that God was going to heal the man. So he dared to be God's voice, God's mouthpiece in the situation. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Paul did the same thing 
In Lystra, there was a certain man sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he perceived. He perceived he had discernment. He had an inspired insight from God. He perceived that he had faith to be healed, so he did not cry out and say, Oh, God, please move for this man. He said, Stand up on your feet. And the man leaped and walked. Because, see, positive faith declarations are the way healings and miracles transpire. I may take another podcast to teach on this. I need to wrap this up. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is powerful to have positive declarations in your life. But don't think they're sufficient within themselves. You have to have a word-based life submitted to the authority and the lordship of Jesus and claim the promises that he's already given so that he can watch over that word to fulfill it. I hope this has helped you. I believe it will because it certainly has helped me when God communicated these truths to me. God bless you, and I look forward to our next time together. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.